I'd like to re- read the words of the text with you once more before the sermon, Acts chapter 8. the so verses 18 through 25, Acts 8 verse 18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered the money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, our Lord, We live a long time since this text, and over the course of time, the teachings of the Scriptures have been grappled with by different Christians, and the sinful deceit of human hearts has twisted the teachings of Scripture. Satan has deceived a lot of people, and we don't have just one visible body of the church, but a whole bunch of churches, cults, and sects claiming the name Church of Jesus Christ. That's an unfortunate reality that we have to deal with. And we can't just turn back the clock and wish that away and pretend that we could read the Bible as if we're reading it for the first time in our lives or as if no one ever read it before us. We'd be cutting ourselves off from all the providential working of God in guiding His church to be where it is today, even with such a multitude of sort of options that are out there. And one of those, of course, is Pentecostalism. And Pentecostals take their name from the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which is an important part in our text this morning. And they will claim then that they can speak in tongues. And they do that. They prophesy about your future when they see you. They may have a word from God for you. Uh, Some of them are endowed with healing powers. And a great many seek to be slain in the Spirit. And that's when some preacher prays over them, puts his hand on their forehead and kind of hits them sort of hard and they fall down. And they they fall into a trance. Um, It's a temporary paralysis. And their whole life sort of passes before them. It's it's almost like an out-of-body experience. And then you also have things like holy laughter and a whole bunch of other things. And then what they're saying is, this is the proper continuation of that church that we read about 
in the New Testament. And so we have this movement in America that started with revivals, which were revivals of preaching the law and the holiness of God, and people were consumed in fear because of sin, and then the gospel was preached, and they were full of rejoicing. Some pretty solid preaching and early revivals that moved into Arminianism and revivalism, where we now needed to have revivals all the time, and it wasn't any longer about preaching the gospel, but Charles Finney said, it's just a matter of using the right method. Anybody can start a revival. You just have to do the right things. And so you move to revivalism in North America, and you move to signs and wonders movement, things like the Toronto Blessing and the Vineyard Churches that some of you may have heard of. They're still around Uh, They were so big in the 90s. There are a lot of people who are deceived into thinking that they will be healed by certain people in this movement. There's a lot of money taken from the poor in the name of Jesus Christ by charlatans such as Benny Hinn who keep big expensive, expensive mansions in different parts of the world and an aircraft to personally fly them around. And then there's the interesting thing that a lot of these experiences, the holy laughter, the being slain in the Spirit, the babbling, are found in all other religions as well that have their charismatic side. It's in Islam, it's in uh, Hinduism, it's in voodoo religion in Haiti, and they mix it with their Roman Catholicism. So, the experiences as such don't right away say it's of Christ. You need to dig deeper. And the description in the New Testament is not merely ecstatic utterings, although it seems like the Corinthian congregation was perhaps moving in that direction, but actual speaking of other languages for the benefit of the people who were hearing so they could hear the wonders of God declared in their own tongues and just would warm their hearts. And there was real power of healing. Even the Sanhedrin had to admit it when there was a man who was paralyzed and now he was walking in front of them. They said, oh, no one can deny that. And these things, brothers and sisters, were evidence that the message of the gospel that the apostles were bringing, the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ brought before them and and that he entrusted to them, that it was true. So you have the message and then you have the signs that accompany it to confirm it. And that's the particular place of these gifts and these signs in the New Testament church. As we come to this passage in Acts chapter 8, a particular thing happens in terms of the gifts, in terms of the dispensing or bestowing of the gifts. And it tells us something about who had the power of these gifts and the power to confer them. And within this context of Samaria in Acts chapter 8 and the persecution in Jerusalem, you see Satan having this power in Jerusalem to persecute, driving out all the believers except the apostles. And then they come to another stronghold of Satan in Samaria where there's Simon the sorcerer. And all these people are in awe of him. This man is the power of God, they say. And God says, no, I am now ready to show my real power. 
I want you to see the real power of God in the gospel and the signs that accompany it. So as the gospel spreads, the spirit of Jesus overpowers the strongholds of Satan. That's what we want to see this morning. As the gospel spreads, the spirit of Jesus overcomes the strongholds of Satan. We'll first see the gift, verses 18 and 19, this gift of the Holy Spirit. What is it? The greed of Simon and the temptation that that presents to Peter and the apostles and and the church. And then the grace, as the gospel continues to spread as we come to the end of the passage. So the gift. We need to here follow the story, kind of see the mechanics of what happened here. And if you get it right, then you'll enter more deeply into the text and, and into the events and see what's going on with this gift of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing is Simon the Sorcerer. Sorcery is not as well known today, but in the ancient world, sorcery was absolutely everywhere. You always had to watch out that your neighbor hadn't written a curse on a little piece of of, uh, vellum, a little animal skin piece or something, and slipped it under your door because that would bring a curse on your household. Or maybe he, he did it around the boundaries of your property. Or you know what voodoo is like, some representation of the person, um, right? Stick the pin in it and that person is going to feel pain. The local sorcerer is, is, is like the local shaman. He's the man who knows everything that's going on. He has this intuitive sixth sense. And if he's really good, he's actually in communication with demons, And so it's not surprising then that the shaman, the sorcerer, does have great power because demons do have great power. And so if the sorcerer says, you know, you're under a curse, you will be sick, it sometimes becomes like a a self-fulfilling prophecy. You hear it, so you become sick. Because they had such a power over the cultures in their time. And Simon, the sorcerer in Samaria, had that kind of power. It's a stronghold of Satan in a different way than Jerusalem was. Jerusalem is the stronghold in the sense that the church is persecuted. They're pursued. They're dragged into court. They're robbed of their possessions. But if you go up to Samaria, the Jewish Sanhedrin doesn't have power there. And it's, it's really actually a different religion. It's a mix of the people who were there and the five books of Moses, uh, the people that the Assyrian king put there after he deported um, the Israelites. And there the persecution doesn't happen. So Philip can go up there and start preaching the Christ, and they all say, well, what's this, something new? And they're interested and they listen, and there's no powers that be persecuting them out of Samaria. It's different. It's a stronghold of Satan in terms of sorcery, enchantment, necromancy, and so on. Inspecting necromancy is ex- uh, and such things that you inspect dead entrails and liver of animals to foretell the future. You watch the pattern of the birds flying and so on. So that's, that's Simon and that's Samaria. But you see what God is doing is 
He said the gospel had to be preached in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's in Acts chapter 1. It's part of his command. And so here are all these apostles in this church in Jerusalem and the Lord brings persecution in his own providential way to push them out into Judea and all Samaria. And so as Philip goes from Jerusalem up north to Samaria, he preaches the gospel. He's not even one of the apostles. He's one of the seven um, early deacons uh, who are deacons slash evangelists, not exactly parallel to our office of deacon today. And so he goes and he spreads the gospel, as do the others. And later in chapter 11, you also have um, other believers going up. Uh, It says, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. And that's how the church in Antioch arises. It's all without the leadership the immediate leadership of the apostles. It's the rest of the believers going out. So Philip is in Samaria, and he preaches Christ. And people believe, and they are baptized. And Simon sees this great following. And I think because of the way Simon responds later, even though it says he believed, it's a kind of temporary faith, a kind of faith in a wonder worker. And he's sort of hedging his bets. He's the sorcerer with all the power and has the following and the influence. And he sees Philip come in and all the people follow him and he figures if I profess faith and get baptized too, I've got an in with Philip and maybe I can keep my influence and my prestige. And you see that when, of course, he tries to buy the gift of God with money. Now, as you follow the mechanics of this carefully, the fact that the apostles weren't there becomes very important because then they're in Jerusalem and they hear Samaria. Samaria, where Jesus took us once once or twice, has accepted the gospel. And all the apostles are in Jerusalem, so they look at each other and they say, who's going to go up to Samaria to check this out? And what does it say in verse 14? They sent Peter and John. And Peter and John arrived, and they prayed over the church that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So what they've done is they've heard what's happened, they've come up to see, and they find believers there. Now, the text here, when it talks about them receiving the Holy Spirit, that's the thing that throws people off so much. Um, But that's exactly what we need to understand better. First of all, if you just think of it, theologically, if they believed and were baptized, did they have the Holy Spirit or did they not? Well, it says in Romans 8 verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. To belong to Christ, you have to have the Spirit of Christ. And we know too that God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Working in us to will means working in us to to create in us the will that does will to believe, that wants to believe, that does believe. So the Holy Spirit is present to work faith in their hearts. 
The people didn't manufacture their own faith and come forward and say, yes, we want to be baptized and we repent of our sins. The Holy Spirit moved them. So the Holy Spirit is present for faith. And yet, there's something more in the text. When the apostles laid their hands on them, verse 17, they received the Holy Spirit. So this is Samaria. These are Samaritans who are historically anti-Jewish and Jews are anti-Samaritan. And there's this major step forward that the apostles acknowledge and they bless the church with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's from our text that we understand what this gift was. Verse 18, Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. Now, if that was the Holy Spirit that was given to turn them to faith, what he would have seen was total unbelievers walking around and the uh, apostles run up on them and whoop, put their hands on their shoulders and all of a sudden, wow, they believe now. But that's not what's going on. The apostles are meeting with a church of believers. Then they lay their hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit and Simon sees something. This is about the visible manifestations of the Holy Spirit. The speaking in tongues, prophesying, healing, um, and other wonders. These believers are given these abilities when the apostles, Peter and John, lay their hands on the believers. Now you have to ask yourself, why didn't Philip do it earlier? Why didn't Philip lay his hands on them? Well, if Philip had laid his hands on them, it would be symbolic, much like uh, ministers and elders will lay their hands on a man being ordained to be a minister or a missionary today. But Philip evidently did not have the ability to confer upon others this gift of the Spirit for prophesying tongues and healing. Only the apostles had that ability to confer, to give the gift to others. And that's where you have to be reading carefully here. And that's where we now can start to put the pieces of the puzzle together about this gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the added gift that confirms the truth of the gospel message at the time of the early church when they do not have the completed scriptures. And the Spirit is particularly given in this way when one of those new boundaries is reached. Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You get the same thing happening again in Ephesus later on. That's representing more the ends of the earth because it's quite a bit further away where you have some people who were baptized with John's baptism didn't know there was a Holy Spirit, it says. It doesn't mean they never knew there was any Holy Spirit at all, but that there were these special gifts of the Holy Spirit to confirm the truth of the gospel. Now, I'm not just making this up. I want to show you from a few texts. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, is the first one we'll look at. Second Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul in the second letter to the Corinthians has to defend his apostolic credentials against other so-called super-apostles who were trying to draw the church away. 
And he says in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 12, Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So the signs and wonders and mighty deeds are particularly tied to the apostles. And Paul, as that extra apostle, was given those gifts also and also then the ability to confer those gifts. Go back to his first letter to the Corinthians chapter 1. And we can confirm it there also. 1 Corinthians 1, the verses 6 and 7. Paul is thanking God for the grace given to the church of Corinth in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, they come short in no gift means that they have been given an abundance of gifts. They don't fall short compared to anybody else. And what were those gifts for? Verse 6, the confirmation of the testimony of Christ. So they got the gospel, and then the signs were a confirmation. God says, yes, amen. What this apostle preached is true. I confirm it with these signs and wonders. You could compare it to God in the Old Testament calling upon Moses and Aaron to set up the tabernacle in the wilderness, telling Moses to ordain Aaron, and then what happens? Holy fire from heaven drops on the altar, and that's God's heavenly confirmation that this, uh, this tabernacle and offering are acceptable to him. At the beginning of the letter to the Romans, Paul writes in a similar way, Romans 1 verse 11, that's the third and last text that I want to show you about these gifts being tied to the apostles. Romans 1 verse 11, Paul writes to Rome, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. See? So that you may have that foundation strengthened. I want to impart to you. That word impart means bestow Give from me to you spiritual gifts. And it's Paul who can do it as an apostle. It's Peter and John who can do it as apostles, but not Philip, uh, not the other seven men chosen in Acts 6, not the rest of the church. They can receive those gifts and then they can exercise the gifts for a generation, but they can't keep bestowing them on the next generation. And if you actually look in the church history, then what you see is a great many signs and wonders, then they fall away after that generation and you don't hear reports of them in the apostolic fathers any longer. It's only later, 300, 400 years after Christ, that people start to claim those gifts and it starts particularly with some of the uh, false teachers. So, now you see what's going on in Acts chapter 8 and now you understand what Simon wants to buy. He wants the gift. But how do you buy a gift? If you buy a gift, it means you're buying it for somebody else and you're going to give it to them. But, except for moms, you usually don't buy your own gifts. You are given gifts. 
You don't pay for gifts. You are given them. And Simon wants to buy the gift, not just the gift to have some ability to do signs and wonders. Look what he says in verse 19. Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wants to do what the apostles do. He wants to be able to walk around and give somebody the ability to babble in tongues or be slain in the Spirit or whatever. Actually, we have no indication in Scripture of people being slain in the Spirit, so cut that one out. Prophesying, healing, other signs and wonders, speaking in tongues. He wants to be able to make other people do that because he sees that that is only possible through the laying on of the apostles' hands. It's very closely and intricately tied to the apostles. So Simon wants to enter the ring of apostles and he wants to do it with his checkbook and his credit card. And he's got a lot of money. Lots and lots and lots of money because people have been paying him to curse their neighbors and bless their crops and do all these things for probably decades. So you understand now the distinction is between possessing the gifts and being able to bestow or impart the gifts. And this is a special time in the early church. It's very important to the Lord Jesus Christ to establish a church and to record that it was established by God's way of testimony to the truth of the gospel brought by the apostles. And so in the early times, all the members of the church knew what it meant when we read up to that time the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. It means that up to that time, in that city, at that time, in Samaria, they didn't have the manifestations of the Spirit because the apostles hadn't laid hands on them. They saw Philip doing it, but nobody else could. Then the apostles came to confirm the message. That's what it means when it says that the Holy Spirit had not yet um, been, been given. It says in verse 16, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Fairly literal translation. So the idea, spirit falls upon you and then you can do these great gifts. And it's not particularly speaking of the spirit for faith. I mentioned that we have the same thing in Acts 19 in Ephesus Now I just want to illustrate for you how these things sadly get misunderstood. And you can appreciate that this does require a fairly close and careful reading of the Scriptures, but it saves you from so much grief. It saves you from so much emotional grief and false promises in the church when you read this right. So I'm just thinking of a young man who was being instructed. We met him in drug rehabilitation And he came to church, and he was being taught, and then he was seduced for a bit by Pentecostals. And it was a whole lot easier for him to become a member of the church there. He didn't have to be taught too much. And then they were ready for baptism, so we came to his baptism service, and there they dunked him in the name of Jesus. And that was it. That comes from a misunderstanding of these texts as if you first get baptized in Jesus' name and later at some undefined time you hope that the Holy Spirit falls on you and then you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they disobey the command of the Lord Jesus to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And they separate 
the persons of the Trinity. Well, by God's grace, the same young man came back to us and we had to rebaptize him. We don't easily rebaptize, but if it's not in the name of the triune God, it's not a proper baptism. And so, brothers and sisters, I just also then would warn you that the claims of spirit baptism today are not true. It is true that people go through ecstatic experiences. And the human mind is very powerful. It doesn't even necessarily have to be under the influence of a demon. It's just a very powerful mind. If I see everybody around me speaking in tongues and I want to speak in tongues, sure enough, soon enough, I could speak in tongues. And I could do the babbling too. But it's false. And it's not the kind of gift God wants us to to aim for today. The gift as it concerns us today is that God was laying the foundation of His church. It says that in Ephesians 2 verse 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Philip is probably considered one of those prophets. He's an evangelist slash deacon. But the apostles and prophets most likely means New Testament prophets and apostles together working, preaching Christ. They laid the foundation. And part of laying that foundation is God confirming with holy fire, as it were, that yes, they are speaking for me and they are speaking the truth. So for us today, that means we have to build on that foundation. And the Apostle Paul himself talks about us building on that foundation. And God is going to test what we build on that foundation. And he's going to see whether it's made of paper and blows over or straw and burns up or whether it's lasting. And it's only lasting if it's built on the apostolic foundation. So we confess in the Nicene Creed that the church is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And that helps us acknowledge that this was a special time in the church when God is revealing His Word in a renewed way in a very focused and concentrated space of time, say, shortly after the death of our Lord, by the year 50, the Scriptures are being written until at the latest, the year 96 or so. And you have all the rest of the New Testament. Very, very special time. And so we have to hold to the truth of the Gospel. This underlines for us the centrality of the message about Jesus Christ coming to die for our sins. And it puts the place of emotion in the proper place. Emotion is a result of being in Christ and loving Christ, being given His Spirit. It is not a thing in itself that you seek and that you go for revivalism week after week after week because I need to be renewed in my experience and my feeling. I need to be renewed in my sinful mind, first of all. And I need my heart once again humbled before God again then my affections and my emotions will be redirected. Well, that helps us see the gift. As the gospel is spreading, the gift of the Spirit is given to assist in the spread of the gospel and convince people that, yes, this is the gospel. This is the truth. Now we have to look briefly at the greed, which we've already seen what Simon wants to do wants to buy the gift of God with money. And Peter here is presented with a great temptation 
early in the church's founding and establishing. Remember, this is Satan's stronghold, Simon the sorcerer. He's got all these people captivated, and suddenly there they are going. And what what does Satan and what do his demons want to do? They want to bring them back. So they've got an inside man, Simon the sorcerer, who gets baptized and says he believes, and then tries to buy the gift of God with money. And how easy this could be for Peter. Here you are dealing with a man that everybody looks up to in town. If you can get him to say the right thing, like in, in a, during election time, get the right people supporting you, get them to say the right things. Well, you could bring, up, bring that many more people into the church if you would just say to Simon, hey, good idea. You pay us the money, you can go around and lay your hands on people too, and well, we'll just pretend you have the gift. Because, you know, we've got a lot of poor people in Jerusalem and all around Judea, and they're suffering, they're not being paid their wages, and they're low on food. Your money could help the poor. Isn't that wonderful? Makes me think of teenagers, at least in my experience, it was a discussion with a teenager, but I've heard it with other people too. They say, why can't we win the lottery if we just give the money to the church or give the money to the Lord? I'm afraid Apostle Peter would say, your money perish with you. You thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. It's dirty money, let's say. And Satan here wants his people back. And he's got this inside track to try and get them. If Peter accepts this, then the church just becomes another association in Greco-Roman society. It just, or, and here in Samaria, it just becomes another uh, guild, like a stonemason's guild. It becomes another cultural group of some kind, a movement, because it has given in to the ways of the world. There's a word you may have heard of, but not heard of too often, and that's the word simony. Simony is defined as the buying of church office. So in the Middle Ages, if you wanted your son to have the money that comes to that Roman Catholic church, you could pay extra money to the bishop. The bishop would appoint your son to be the, the priest, but your son would then appoint somebody else to do the work of the priest for him, and he would collect the money and give only a quarter of it to the other guy, and he got three quarters. Well, the whole buying of the office for your son is called simony after Simon the sorcerer. And the Lord will have no part of that in his church. It just warns us to be so careful about senior pastor, junior pastor, who gets paid more, who gets paid less. We fall into the wrong way of thinking when we do those sorts of things. And all of this, brothers and sisters, has to bring us to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if there's anyone who's the opposite of Simon the sorcerer, it is our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only did he not try to buy the gift of God with money, he also didn't even assume his place as our Savior and our High Priest at his own urging. It says in Hebrews 5 that every high priest is appointed by God, and it says no man takes this honor to himself, but he is called by God, just as Aaron was 
so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, it was God who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is our Lord Jesus Christ who was called by God the Father to be your Savior. Not a just a fluke of history that he died on a cross. It's at the calling of the Father, his request to the Son, and the willingness of the Son to go to the cross as the triune God are perfectly united in our salvation. And for that, Jesus Christ had to learn obedience through what he suffered. He had to learn and taste and experience the pain that comes because of our sins when he was obedient to the Father. This, brothers and sisters, is the entire opposite of Simon. And that's our Savior. No greed, but humility. Denied himself to be our Savior. And what did he do thereby? But destroy the strongholds of Satan. It's because of the Lord Jesus Christ's power in destroying Satan. He made Satan undo himself. He made Satan... uh, stretch himself too far in killing one who is innocent. And so he destroyed Satan through Satan's own act. The remarkable wisdom of God. You can't buy that gift with money. The gifts of God are more precious than gold, than much fine gold. They are More sweet than honey, than honey from the comb. The gospel is not for sale because it cannot be bought. After all, we were were redeemed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. No one can buy the gift of God with money. Spiritual gifts are worth more than all the money in the world. Jesus said, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So let us live in the very opposite of the way of greed. Let us live in the way of thankfulness, looking to Jesus Christ for all we need, receiving it from God as a precious gift from the God who in his power in Christ has destroyed the strongholds of Satan. Well, and that brings us to the end then. In the last two verses, Simon asked them to pray for him. But what did Peter tell him? He said, you should pray to God. Peter says in verse 22, repent and pray God if perhaps he might forgive you. The perhaps is there because Peter knows that This man, he says, is in the bonds or bound by iniquity, poisoned by bitterness. In the Bible, being poisoned by bitterness doesn't just happen in a moment. It's when you have committed yourself to a way of sin that it finally descends to bitterness. And so Simon has been in this way for some time. He is poisoned. He is bound and tied up. And Peter is questioning whether he would really repent and ask for forgiveness. That's why he has that that if perhaps in there. And then you see that it was a very appropriate if perhaps because Simon says, he doesn't say, fall on his knees and cry and say, I have sinned against you, 
O Lord, against you only have I sinned. He says, like Pharaoh did to Moses, pray for me so that these bad things don't happen to me. That's like saying, you're a greater witch doctor than I am. You've got more power than I do, so you pray for me and then I'll be okay. It's very sad that that was the outcome. And there are a number of stories from the early church which may or may not be true about Simon later working against the apostles. But it's clear here that the faith he had when he was first baptized was a temporary kind of allegiance to the apostle or to Philip. But the grace still triumphs in the end, brothers and sisters. This is grace upon grace because what happens in Samaria now comes to happen in many other towns and villages of Samaria. Verse 25, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. Who's they? Peter and John. Those apostles that were delegated to go out went out, they did their task, they gave the gift of the Holy Spirit for the establishing of the church in Samaria of all places, and now they go back to Jerusalem, but they don't just hightail it back and avoid all Samaritans. These are renewed men. The gospel has broken the racial barriers, and they preach in all these villages of Samaria, and, well, it doesn't say how many people believed, but they preached the gospel. They did their task. And God led them forward. What a wonderful thing as the gospel is spread. And it just calls on us, brothers and sisters, to rely on the same God, the same Holy Spirit, and preach the same gospel and reach as many people as we can. Amen.